Welcome to The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. We are continuing to read at page 103 for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers, and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now the SWRB's reading of the bondage of the will, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 And now... Page 103. We hold the case thus, that the spirits are to be tried and proved by a twofold judgment. The one, internal, by which through the Holy Spirit, or a peculiar gift of God, anyone may illustrate and to a certainty judge of and determine on the doctrines and sentiments of all men for himself and his own personal salvation, concerning which it is said. 1 Corinthians 2.15. The spiritual man judgeth all things, but he himself is judged of no man. This belongs to faith, and is necessary for every, even private Christian. This we have above called the internal clearness of the Holy Scripture. And it was this perhaps to which they alluded, who in answer to you said that all things must be determined by the judgment of the Spirit. But this judgment cannot profit another, nor are we speaking of this judgment in our present discussion. For no one, I think, doubts its reality. The other, then, is the external judgment by which we judge to the greatest certainty of the spirits and doctrines of all men, not for ourselves only, but for others also, and for their salvation. This judgment is peculiar to the public ministry of the Word and the external office, and especially belongs to teachers and preachers of the Word. Of this we make use when we strengthen the weak in faith, and when we refute adversaries. This is what we before called the external clearness of the Holy Scripture. Hence, we affirm that all spirits are to be proved in the face of the church by the judgment of Scripture. For this ought, above all things, to be received and most firmly settled among Christians, that the Holy Scriptures are a spiritual light by far more clear than the Son itself, especially in those things which pertain unto salvation, or necessity. Section 35. But since we have been persuaded to the contrary of this, by that pestilent saying of the sophists, the scriptures are obscure and ambiguous, we are compelled, first of all, to prove that first grand principle of ours by which all other things are to be proved, which among the sophists is considered absurd and impossible to be done. First, then, Moses saith, Deuteronomy 17, 8, 
that if there arise a matter too hard in judgment, men are to go to the place which God shall choose for his name, and there to consult the priests, who are to judge of it according to the law of the Lord. He saith, according to the law of the Lord. But how will they judge thus, if the law of the Lord be not externally most clear, so as to satisfy them concerning it? Otherwise, it would have been sufficient if he had said, according to their own spirit. Nay, it is so in every government of the people. The causes of all are adjusted according to laws. But how could they be adjusted if the laws were not most certain and absolutely very light to the people? But if the laws were ambiguous and uncertain, there would not only be no causes settled, but no certain consistency of manners. Since, therefore, laws are enacted that manners may be regulated according to a certain form and questions in causes settled, it is necessary that that which is to be the rule and standard for men in their dealings with each other, as the law is, should of all things be the most certain and most clear. And if that light and certainty in laws in profane administrations where temporal things only are concerned are necessary and have been, by the goodness of God, freely granted to the whole world, how shall he not have given to Christians, that is, to his own elect, laws and rules of much greater light and certainty, according to which they might adjust and settle both themselves and all their causes? And that more especially since he wills that all temporal things should, by his, be despised. And if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more shall he clothe us? Matthew 6.30 But let us proceed and drown that pestilent saying of the sophists in scriptures. Psalm 19.8 saith, the commandment of the Lord is clear, or pure, enlightening the eyes. And surely that which enlightens the eyes cannot be obscure or ambiguous. Again, Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The door of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. Here it is ascribed unto the words of God that they are a door and something open, which is quite plain to all, and enlightens even the simple. Isaiah 8.20 sends all questions to the law and to the testimony and threatens that if we do not this, the light of the east shall be denied us. In Malachi 2.7, it commands that they should seek the law from the mouth of the priest as being the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But a most excellent messenger indeed of the Lord of hosts he must be who should bring forth those things which were both so ambiguous to himself and so obscure to the people that neither he should know what he himself said nor they what they heard. And what throughout the Old Testament in the 119th Psalm especially is more frequently said in praise of the Scripture than that it is itself a most certain and most clear light. For Psalm 119 verse 105 celebrates its clearness thus. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my paths. He does not say only, Thy spirit is a lamp unto my feet, though he ascribes unto him also his office, saying, Thy good spirit shall lead me into the land of uprightness. Psalm 143, verse 10. 
Thus, the scripture is called a way and a path. That is from its most perfect certainty. Section 36. Now, let us come to the New Testament. Paul said in Romans 1-2 that the gospel was promised by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And Romans 3.21, that the righteousness of faith was testified by the law and the prophets. But by what testimony is that if it be obscure? Paul, however, throughout all his epistles, makes the gospel the word of light, the gospel of clearness. And he professedly and most copiously sets it forth as being so. In 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, where he treats most gloriously concerning the clearness both of Moses and of Christ. Peter also said in 2 Peter 1.19, And we certainly have more surely the word of prophecy, unto which ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light shining in a dark place. Here Peter makes the word of God a clear lamp, and all other things darkness whereas we make obscurity and darkness of the Word. Christ also often calls Himself the light of the world, John 8.12 and 9.5, and John the Baptist a burning and a shining light, John 5.35. Certainly not on account of the holiness of His life, but on account of the Word which He ministered. In the same manner, Paul calls the Philippians shining lights of the world, Philippians 2.15, because, says he, ye hold forth the word of life, verse 16. For life without the word is uncertain and obscure. And what is the design of the apostles improving their preaching by the scriptures? Is it that they may obscure their own darkness by still greater darkness? What was the intention of Christ in teaching the Jews to search the Scriptures, John 5.39, as testifying of Him? Was it that He might render them doubtful concerning faith in Him? What was their intention who, having heard Paul, searched the Scriptures night and day to see if these things were so? Acts 17.11 Do not all these things prove that the apostles, as well as Christ Himself, appealed to the scriptures as the most clear testimonies of the truth of their discourses? With what face then do we make them obscure? Are these words of the scripture, I pray you, obscure or ambiguous? God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. The word was made flesh, John 1.14. And all those other words which the whole world receives as articles of faith? Whence then did they receive them? Was it not from the Scriptures? And what do those who at this day preach? Do they not expound and declare the Scriptures? But if the Scripture which they declare be obscure, who shall certify us that their declaration is to be depended on? Shall it be certified by another new declaration? But who shall make that declaration? And so we may go on ad infinitum. In a word, if the Scripture be obscure or ambiguous... What need was there for its being sent down from heaven? Are we not obscure and ambiguous enough in ourselves without an increase of it by obscurity, ambiguity, and darkness being sent down unto us from heaven? And if this be the case, what will become of that of the apostle? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
2 Timothy 3.16. Nay, Paul, thou art altogether useless, and all those things which thou ascribest unto the Scripture are to be sought for out of the fathers, approved by a long course of ages, and from the Roman sea. Wherefore, thy sentiment must be revoked where thou writest to Titus in chapter 1, verse 9, that a bishop ought to be powerful in doctrine to exhort and to convince the gainsayers and to stop the mouths of vain talkers and deceivers of minds. For how shall he be powerful when thou leavest him the scriptures in obscurity, that is, as arms of toe and feeble straws instead of a sword? And Christ must also of necessity revoke his word where he falsely promises us, saying, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to resist. Luke 21.15 For how shall they not resist when we fight against them with obscurities and uncertainties? And why do you also, Erasmus, prescribe to us a form of Christianity if the scriptures be obscure to you? But I fear I must already be burdensome, even to the insensible by dwelling so long and spending so much strength upon a point so fully clear. But it was necessary that that impudent and blasphemous saying, the scriptures are obscure, should thus be drowned. And you too, my friend Erasmus, know very well what you are saying when you deny that the scripture is clear, for you at the same time drop into my ear this assertion, it of necessity follows, therefore, that all your saints whom you adduce are much less clear. And truly it would be so. For who shall certify us concerning their light if you make the scriptures obscure? Therefore they who deny the all clearness and all plainness of the scriptures leave us nothing else but darkness. Section 37. But here, perhaps you will say, all that you have advanced is nothing to me. I do not say that the scriptures are everywhere obscure, for who would be so mad, but that they are obscure in this and the like parts. I answer, I do not advance these things against you only, but against all who are of the same sentiments with you. Moreover, I declare against you concerning the whole of the scripture that I will have no one part of it called obscure. And to support me stands that which I have brought forth out of Peter, that the word of God is to us a lamp shining in a dark place. 2 Peter 1.19 But if any part of this lamp do not shine, it is rather a part of the dark place than of the lamp itself. For Christ has not so illuminated us as to wish that any part of his word should remain obscure, even while he commands us to attend to it. For if it be not shiningly plain, his commanding us to attend to it is in vain. Wherefore, if the doctrine concerning free will be obscure and ambiguous, it does not belong unto Christians and the Scriptures, and is therefore to be left alone entirely and classed among those old wives' fables, 1 Timothy 4.7, which Paul condemns in contentious Christians. But if it do belong unto Christians and the Scriptures, it ought to be clear, open, and manifest in every respect like unto all the other most evident articles of faith. For all the articles of faith which belong unto Christians ought to be such as may not only be most evident to themselves, but so defended by manifest and clear scriptures against the adversaries as to stop the mouths of them all, that they shall not be able in anything to gainsay. 
And this Christ has promised us, saying, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to resist. But if your mouth be weak in this part, that the adversaries are able to resist, he saying that no adversary shall be able to resist our mouth is false. In the doctrine of free will, therefore, we shall either have no adversaries, which will be the case if it belong not unto us, or if it belong unto us, we shall have adversaries indeed, but such as will not be able to resist. But concerning the inability of our adversaries to resist, as that particular falls in here, I would, by the way, observe that it is thus. It does not mean that they are forced to yield with the heart or to confess or be silent. For who can compel men against their will to yield, confess their error, and be silent? What, saith Augustine, is more loquacious than vanity? But what is meant by their mouths being stopped? They're not having a word to gainsay, and they're saying many things, and yet in the judgment of common sense, saying nothing will be best illustrated by examples. When Christ put the Sadducees to silence by proving the resurrection from the dead, out of that scripture of Moses, Matthew 22, verses 23 through 32, I am the God of Abraham, etc. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Exodus 3, 6. This they were not able to resist, nor had they a word to gainsay, but did they therefore cease from their opinion? And how often did he, by the most evident scriptures and arguments, so confute the Pharisees that the very people saw them to be confuted openly, and they themselves felt it? Nevertheless, they still perseveringly continued his adversaries. Stephen, in Acts 6.10, so spoke that according to the testimony of Luke, they could not resist the spirit and the wisdom with which he spake. But what did they? Did they yield? No. From their shame of being overcome and their inability to resist, they became furious, and shutting their eyes and ears, they suburned false witnesses against him. Acts 6, 11-13 Behold how the same apostle, standing in the council, confutes his adversaries, while he enumerates to that people the mercies of God unto them from their beginning, and proves to them that God never commanded a temple to be built unto him. For it was upon that point they then held him as guilty, and that was the subject in dispute. At length, however, he grants that there was a temple built under Solomon. But then he takes up the point in this way. But the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And to prove this, he brings forward Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 66, verse 1. What is the house that ye build unto me? And tell me, what could they here say against a scripture so manifest? Yet still... Not at all moved by it, they stood fixed in their own opinion. Wherefore, he then launches forth on them, saying, Ye uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, etc. Acts 7.51 He saith, Ye do resist, although they were not able to resist. But let us come to our own times. John Huss preached thus against the Pope from Matthew 16.18 the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Is there there any obscurity or ambiguity? But the gates of hell do prevail against the Pope and his, for they are notorious throughout the world of their open impiety and iniquities. Is there any obscurity here either? 
Ergo, the Pope and his are not the church concerning which Christ speaks. What could they gainsay here? How could they resist the mouth that Christ had given him? Yet, they did resist and persist until they had burnt him. So far were they from yielding to him in heart. And this is the kind of resistance to which Christ alludes when he saith, Your adversary shall not be able to resist. Luke 21.15 He says they are adversaries. Therefore they will resist, for otherwise they would not remain adversaries, but would become friends. And yet he says they shall not be able to resist. What is this else but saying, Though they resist, they shall not be able to resist. If therefore I also shall be enabled so to refute the doctrine of free will, that the adversary shall not be able to resist, although they persist in their opinion, and go on to resist contrary to their conscience, I shall have done enough. For I know well by experience how unwilling everyone is to be overcome. And as Quintilian says, that there is no one who would not rather appear to know than to be taught. Although nowadays all men in all places have this proverb on their tongue, but more from use or rather abuse than from heart reality. I am willing to learn and I am ready to follow what is better when I am taught it by admonition. I am man and liable to error. Because under this mask, this fair semblance of humility, they can with plausible confidence say, I am not fully satisfied of it. I do not comprehend it. He does violence to the scriptures. He asserts so obstinately. And they nestle under this confidence, taking it for granted that no one would ever suspect that souls of so much humility could ever pertinaciously resist and determinately impugn the known truth. Hence, their not yielding in heart is not to be imputed to their malice, but to the obscurity and duplicity of their arguments. In the same manner did the philosophers of the Greeks act, who, that the one might not appear to give up to the other, though evidently confuted, began, as Aristotle records, to deny first principles. In the same way, we would mildly persuade ourselves and others that there are in the world many good men who would willingly embrace the truth if there were but one who could plainly show which it is, and that it is not to be supposed that those many learned men in such a course of ages were all in error and did not know that truth. As though we knew it not, that the world is the kingdom of Satan, where in addition to the natural blindness that is engendered in our flesh, and those most wicked spirits also which have dominion over us, we grow hardened in that very blindness and are bound in a darkness, no longer human but devilish. Section 38 But you ask, if then the scripture be quite clear, why have men of renowned talent through so many ages been blind upon this point? I answer, they have been thus blind to the praise and glory of free will in order that that highly boasted of power by which a man is able to apply himself unto those things that pertain unto eternal salvation might be eminently displayed that very exalted power which neither sees those things which it sees nor hears those things which it hears and much less understands and seeks after them. For to this power applies that which Christ and the evangelists so often bring forward out of Isaiah 6.9 Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand 
and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. What is this else but saying that free will or the human heart is so bound by the power of Satan that unless it be quickened up in a wonderful way by the Spirit of God, it cannot of itself see or hear those things which strike against the eyes and ears so manifestly as to be, as it were, palpable by the hand. So great is the misery and blindness of the human race. Thus also the evangelists themselves, when they wondered how it could be that the Jews were not won over by the works and words of Christ, which were evidently incontrovertible and undeniable, satisfied themselves from that place of the Scripture where it is shown that man left to himself, seeing seeth not, and hearing heareth not. And what can be more monstrous? The light, saith Christ, shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. John 1.5 Who could believe this? Who hath heard the like, that the light should shine in darkness, and yet the darkness still remain darkness, and not be enlightened? Wherefore, it is no wonder in divine things that through so many ages men renowned for talent remain blind. It might have been a wonder in human things, but in divine things, it would rather have been a wonder if there had been one here and there that did not remain blind, and that they all remained utterly blind alike is no wonder at all. For what is the whole human race together without the Spirit, but the kingdom of the devil, as I have said, and a confused chaos of darkness? And therefore it is that Paul, in Ephesians 6.12, calls the devils the rulers of this darkness. And 1 Corinthians 2.8, he saith that none of the princes of this world knew the wisdom of God. What then must he think of the rest, who asserts that the princes of this world are the slaves of darkness? For by princes he means those greatest and highest ones whom you call men renowned for talent. And why were all the Aryans blind? Were there not among them men renowned for talent? Why was Christ foolishness to the nations? Are there not among the nations men renowned for talent? God, saith Paul, knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. 1 Corinthians 3.20 He chose not to say of men, as the text to which he refers has it, but would point to the first and greatest among men that from them we might form a judgment of the rest. But upon these points more at large, perhaps, hereafter. Suffice it thus to have premised in exordium that the scriptures are most clear and that by them our doctrines can be so defended that the adversaries cannot resist. But those doctrines that cannot be thus defended are nothing to us, for they belong not unto Christians. But if there be any who do not see this clearness, and are blind, or offend under the sun, they, if they be wicked, manifest how great that dominion and power of Satan is over the sons of men, when they can neither hear nor comprehend the all-clear words of God, but are as one cheated by a juggler, who is made to think that the sun is a cold cinder, or to believe that a stone is gold. But if they fear God, they are to be numbered among those elect, who to a certain degree are led into error that the power of God may be manifest in us 
without which we can neither see nor do anything whatever. For the not comprehending the words of God does not arise, as you pretend, from weakness of mind. Nay, nothing is better adapted to the receiving of the words of God than a weakness of the mind. For it was on account of these weak ones, and to these weak ones, that Christ came. And it is to them he sends his word. But it is the wickedness of Satan enthroned and reigning in our weakness and resisting the word of God. For if Satan did not do this, a whole world of men might be converted by one word of God once heard, nor could there be need of more. Section 39 But why do I go on enlarging? Why do I not conclude this discussion with this exordium and give my sentence against you in your own words according to that saying of Christ, By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Matthew 12.37 For you say that the scripture is not quite clear upon this point. And then, suspending all declaration of your own sentiment, you discuss each side of the subject, what may be said for and what against, and nothing else whatever do you do in the whole of this book of yours, which, for that very reason, you wish to call diatribe, the collation, rather than apophysis, the denial, or something of that kind because you wrote with a design to collect all things and to assert nothing. But if the scripture be not quite clear upon this point, why do those of whom you boast not only remain blind to their side of the subject, but rashly and as fools define and assert free will as though proved by a certain and all sure testimony of scripture? That numberless series of the most learned men, I mean, whom the consent of so many ages has approved, even unto this day, and many of whom, in addition to an admirable acquaintance with the sacred writings, a piety of life commends. Some have given, by their blood, a testimony of that doctrine of Christ, which they had defended by scriptures. If you say what you say from your heart, it is surely a settled point with you that free will has asserters who are endowed with a wonderful understanding in the sacred writings and who even gave testimony of that doctrine by their blood. If this be true, they certainly had clear scripture on their side, else where would be their admirable understanding in the sacred writings? Moreover, what lightness and temerity of spirit must it be to shed one's blood for a matter uncertain and obscure? This is not to be the martyrs of Christ, but the martyrs of devils. Now then, do you just set the matter before you and weigh it in your mind and say to which of the two you consider the greater credit should be given to the prejudices of so many learned men, so many orthodox divines, so many saints, so many martyrs, so many theologians, old and recent, so many colleges, so many councils, so many bishops and high priest popes who were of opinion that the scriptures are quite clear and who, according to you, confirmed the same by their writings and by their blood, or to your own private judgment, who deny that the scriptures are quite clear and who, perhaps, never spent one single tear or sigh for the doctrine of Christ in the whole of your life. If you believe they were right in their opinion, why do you not follow them in it? If you do not believe they were right, who do you boast of them with such a trumpeting mouth 
in such a torrent of language as though you would overwhelm us head and ears with a certain storm or flood of eloquence. Which flood, however, will the more heavily rush back upon your own head, whilst my ark is borne along in safety on the top of the waters? Moreover, you attribute to so many and great men the utmost folly and temerity. For when you speak of them as being men of the greatest understanding in the Scripture, and as having asserted it by their pen, by their life, and by their death, and yet at the same time contend yourself that the same Scripture is obscure and ambiguous, this is nothing less than making those men most ignorant in understanding and most stupid in assertion. Thus I, their poor private despiser, do not pay them such an ill compliment as you do their public flatterer. Section 40 Here, therefore, I hold you fast in a last-pinch syllogism, as they say, for either the one or the other of your assertions must be false. Either that where you say, those men were admirable for their understanding in the sacred writings, for their life, and for their martyrdom, or that where you say that the scriptures are not quite clear. But since you are drawn more this latter way, that is, to believe that the scriptures are not quite clear, for this is what you harp upon throughout the whole of your book, it remains evident that it was either from your own natural inclination towards them, or for the sake of flattering them, but by no means from the seriousness that you called those men men of greatest understanding in the Scripture and martyrs of Christ merely in order that you might blind the eyes of the inexperienced commonalty and make work for Luther by loading his cause with empty words, odium, and contempt. But, however, I aver that neither of your assertions are true and that both are false. For first of all, I aver that the scriptures are quite clear, and next, that those men, as far as they asserted free will, were most ignorant of the sacred writings, and moreover, that they neither asserted it by their life nor by their death, but by their pen only, and that, while their heart was traveling another road. Wherefore, this small part of the disputation I conclude thus, by the scripture, as being obscure, nothing ever has hitherto nor ever can be defined concerning free will, according to your own testimony. Moreover, nothing has ever been manifested in confirmation of free will in the lives of all the men from the beginning of the world, as we have proved above. To teach, then, a something which is neither described by one word within the Scriptures nor evidenced by one fact without the Scriptures is that which does not belong to the doctrines of Christians, but to the very fables of Lucian. Except, however, that Lucian, as he amuses only with ludicrous stories from wit and policy, deceives and injures no one. But these friends of ours, in a matter of importance which concerns eternal salvation, madly trifle to the perdition of souls innumerable. Thus, I might here have concluded the whole of this discussion, even with the testimony of my adversaries making for me and against themselves. For no proof can be more decisive than the very confession and testimony of the guilty person against himself. But however, as Paul commands us to stop the mouths of vain talkers, let us now enter upon the discussion itself and handle the subject in the order in which the diatribe proceeds, 
that we may first confute the arguments adduced in support of free will, secondly, defend our arguments that are confuted, and lastly, contend for the grace of God against free will. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com or by phone at 780-450-3730 or by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add, that's add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, of course, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times, our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends. But we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. We want to thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.